0: you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to go to John chapter 9 with me this morning. John chapter 9, I want to read some verses for you, and then we're going to turn to the preaching of God's Word. we will try and do my best to explain these and give you an application to take home with you. John chapter 9, we're almost halfway through this ancient first century biography of Jesus. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 13, down to the end of the chapter, and see if you can put yourself there, if you can feel the tension, if you can feel the conversation that goes back and forth, and maybe that will help you understand why I titled my sermon, What I Did. This is the Word of God, John chapter 9, beginning in verse 13, where John writes... They, that's the the neighbors and the family in the first 12 verses, brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now this was a guy who was born blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he, and and he puts he because he's never seen Jesus. He put mud on my eyes and washed, and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And so they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? He has, since he has opened your eyes, and he said, He is a prophet. The Jews, in verse 18, did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, We know that this is indeed our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees we do not know. Nor do we know the one who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. And he will speak for himself. Notice verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone, anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he or she was to be put out of the synagogue. So therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. And so in verse 24, the second time, they called the man man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. I love this. Watch what this guy says. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? (laughs) And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know whether he comes from. And the man answered, wait, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. Now, we know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And I love this. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and is he who is speaking to you? And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. If you're a visitor, I've been walking through the Gospel of John with our church family, and I've titled my series, Conversations with Christ, because of all of the Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, John records more of the conversations between Jesus and individuals, or Jesus and groups of people, than any of the other Gospels. And here, in this particular passage, and for today, I've titled my sermon, True Conversion Versus False Religion. In this chapter in John's Gospel, we've already looked at three basic things. You can read about it in verses 1 to 12, and then what I've read, you basically hear about miracles, especially this miracle of a man receiving a sight born blind, and John tells us that was a sign. We also dealt with the idea of Suffering. Suffering because remember in the early verses of this chapter, his own disciples said, Who sinned, this man or his parents, because they couldn't put together, why did it seem this guy was suffering? And we discovered that miracles are not all as common as we would like them to be in our present age. If you actually study the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, taking out the Gospels, so from Genesis to Malachi and from Acts to Revelation, you actually only have about 130 to 140 recorded miracles. If depending on how you view earth's history, you're talking about one miracle every 50 to 100 years. But in Jesus' time, that that three 18 months to 36 months of Jesus, you have this concentration, this explosion of miracles. And John tells us that he deliberately chose seven of these miracles to use them as signs that Jesus performed. Now, of course, when we get to the end, there's actually an eighth sign, which is the resurrection of Jesus himself. Now, as many of you know, if you come here week after week after week in church... And yes, I'm going to quote it again. John doesn't tell you till the end of his gospel why he wrote what he did. And in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So John tips his hand. He says, look, I've picked out seven. I had a lot to pick from. But then he tells you why these seven. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's his purpose. I have chosen this miracle in John chapter 9 of a man born blind because I want you to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if you will believe in him, here's the result. And that by believing, you, us, we may have life in his name. And so here we are a healing, a messianic miracle, a man born blind. But it's more than that. We've already studied in weeks past that Isaiah, the great prophet that we read about in some of our liturgy this morning, told the nation of Israel that Messiah would come and bring light and give light. It's also a backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles. If you know anything about Judaism, back in chapter 8, when they feasted and they had this great Feast of Tabernacles that the four great trumpet-like lights that went on each of the corners of the temple were lit and overshone all of Jerusalem. And that is the backdrop by which Jesus says in John 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. And then as you carry into chapter 9, you get a guy who was born blind Getting his sight back. Now I want to make sure we get this as we go through this. The Apostle John is using a physically blind man to illustrate what coming to Jesus is going to look like. You see, the man born blind didn't have to be convinced that he was blind. It's all he ever knew. He owned the reality He didn't deny it. He didn't even make excuses for it. Much less did he pretend that it wasn't bad as it was. He was born blind. He was blind. He had never seen light. Remember, I've told you this. You couldn't say to him, oh, you should see the sunrise. He had no concept of that. If, he say, if somebody said, oh, the stars shine so brightly, he had no idea. For him, darkness was his reality. How his imagination must have worked, I cannot tell you. But here is Jesus, loving him, healing him, restoring him. And as we see in our passage, transforming his life both in the present and in the eternal. But, as we've seen, there's a bunch of people also here with seeing eyes who simply can't see. And let me say this, won't see. Our man has never seen anything, much less Jesus. He couldn't read about Him. He was blind. They didn't have Braille back then. The display of greater trust and obedience and knowledge and allegiance to Jesus was found in this man than even the disciples and especially the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the group who claimed to know more of Messiah and God and what it meant to be a child of God than anyone. And all of that is the backdrop to what I just read in John 9, 13 to 41. And I break the chapter down into three parts. Number one is the fantastic miracle. Number two is the fanatical religious response. And finally, there's a faithful servant's response. But let me say here at the beginning no matter what you get from my preaching, no matter what you've heard here, the one question I want all of you to think about, the one question I'm asking you all to answer, is actually the key to this entire chapter, which is verse 35. Do you see it? Jesus asks the man, and in essence, asks everyone there that was present, and He's asking you and I today, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Every one of us in this room has to answer that question. And I might add that the answer will determine your life and your eternal destiny. Let me explain. Deny Jesus and live this life any way you want. Go ahead, live it any way you want. But you've got to be honest. If you're going to live life denying Jesus, then you've got to make up your own moral code. You've got to come up with a purpose for living. It will be up to you to explain to your friends or to yourself or to your family or your loved ones to explain suffering and pain and why bad things happen to you or others whom you love. If you have no higher being in Jesus, you'll have to explain why evil exists and why do evil people seem to get away with things. In fact, if you deny Jesus, you'll have to come up with everything, won't you? You'll have to define what happiness is. You'll have to define what is peace. Peace you'll have to make a determination what is joy and what is love. That is what the outlook for life is. And then, on top of that, if you are going to deny Jesus and make yourself the God of your own life, then you have to face things like death and the loss of relationship. <laughs> but there is an alternative. If you believe in Jesus, if you trust Jesus, then you can have rest. If you believe in Jesus, who he is, God in the flesh. Jesus who knows everything, has power over everything. Jesus who gives us purpose and meaning and value. Jesus who because of God defines love and then models it through his son Jesus Christ. God then defines good and evil and will defend and overcome evil. God has a plan. God is in control. And we can live this life with humility and peace. If you will trust Jesus, you can explain suffering and sickness. We can explain evil, where it came from, and how God is, has, and will deal with it. And of course, to trust Jesus means you've got to truly come to grips with who you don't trust. And that, my friends, is what Solomon meant in Proverbs 3. When Solomon said, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll make straight your paths. Notice, Be not wise in your own eyes. Our passage is about blind eyes and so-called seeing eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And so I urge you that while I preach this passage to you, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you? What does that look like? What does you saying, I believe in Jesus, mean practically speaking for you? And so let's look at this. Very quickly in verses 1 to 12, you have a fantastic miracle. This is just review for you all. It goes without saying that this is an incredible miracle. As far as I know, it has never happened in the history of humanity to this point and hasn't happened again since. That a man was born blind and then given his sight You and I are meant to see this sign and apply it just as we read in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. But you're also supposed to remember things you've read thus far. Let me give you just this theme of light all through the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, John says, He, Christ, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. A few chapters later in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus, Jesus would say this, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. All of this gives you backdrop to what I've read for you already. In John chapter 6, Jesus would say, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And then just the last chapter, John chapter 8, where Jesus said these words, and we don't like to hear them in our politically correct, affirming culture of today. Jesus said, I told you, that you would die in your sins. And here's the condition. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. You've heard me, Ross, Steve, others preach this to you. For the good news to be good, the bad news has to be bad. Right? I think it's really cheap if we try to give you a good news story if you don't understand what you're being saved from and this is what we're being done. And so we actually have a man born blind. We have an able and willing Savior and then we have a shocking result and reaction. And this brings us to where I want to really get our attention to a fanatical religious response. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but in John chapter 9, verses 13 to 41, three times religious people will attempt to try and explain this situation. First, they ask the man in verses 13 and 14, how did you get your sight back? Then they'll call his parents, and they'll ask him... How did your boy get his sight back if he was born blind? And then again, in chapter, uh, verse 18 and 19, they'll ask the man again, but with each of the same explanations, they reject more and more. And that's the problem with religion. Jesus does something amazing. Something, in fact, that had never been done in the history of the world. Can you imagine if any of you knew someone that was born blind? I've known two people born blind. And both were actually gloriously saved. And they are great examples in my life. But I can tell you that this one dear lady out in Harbor Grace, Newfoundland, her name was Alice, and she was born blind and she knew nothing. And how many times this woman would testify and testify many times that she could not wait that the first thing she would see would be Jesus. And she would talk about what it was like and, and, and just to li- listen to this woman hope for the future to see would well up feelings of emotions in all of us. So can you imagine what would have happened if she walked in one Sunday and said, I could see? I think even Baptists would have had a bit of a hallelujah fit. And that's saying something. All right. Never had this been done. Can you imagine the praise, the worship, the thanksgiving, the tears of joy, the tell me again. How did Jesus rescue you and restore you? But, but wait, look at our passage in verse 14. No, there's no praise. It's, wait a second. Jesus made some mud on the Sabbath? That's the reaction of Religion. You see, Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John seems to go after this particular commandment. And I find myself saying, why? I mean, keep the Sabbath day as holy as one of the Ten Commandments, right? And amazingly, they were saying, basically, Jesus wasn't allowed to heal on the Sabbath, but they could certainly kill on the Sabbath. Because if you get to the end of John chapter 8, that's what they tried to do. So much for that day of rest and to worship God and ponder all that God has done. Let's be honest, When I preach about Pharisees, I highly doubt any of you are sitting there going, Oh, jump and Steve's going to preach to me today. Most of you, when I say, we're going to look at the Pharisees, will think, Hey, preacher, give it, because I'm not that. We never see ourselves as a Pharisee. And let me explain. Have you ever noticed, even in our pop culture, how many movies or television shows try to give you an expression of religious people? It's usually never positive. It's usually never sunshine and roses, whether it's old westerns or period epics or the modern television shows. The religious are not normally presented to be admired or looked up to. They are often presented as stern, unhappy, and authoritarian. Am I not right? I don't know how many of you know this, but Charlotte Bronte's novel, Jane Eyre, was first published in the mid-1800s. And she was criticized for her betrayal of the Reverend Brocklehurst as anti-Christian. So in the second edition, Bronte wrote a preface to explain her purpose. And she asserted that her motive was not to undermine, but rather to strengthen the church. This is what she said. She was not assailing Christ, but those who falsely called themselves Christians. This is what she writes. Self-righteousness is not religion. To attack the first is not to assail the last. The last. To pluck the mask from the face of the Pharisee is not to lift an impious hand to the crown of thorns. Richard Phillips says long before Charlotte Bronte, there was the Apostle John, and his portrait of the Pharisee's face is every bit as chilling as Bronte's Reverend Brocklehurst. Of the many scenes that might have inspired Bronte's character, none is more vivid than that of the Pharisee's examination of the man whose eyes had been restored in John chapter 9. And this is, my friends, is what I want us to look at. It's the difference between being religious and being Christian. And you've got to decide, who am I? Are you here this morning and you're religious? Church is almost your hobby or your cultural heritage. It was kind of given to you. Or have you met, believed in, trust, and had your life radically transformed by Jesus? And so let me give you four interesting habits of religion. And we see them in our passage. Notice in verse 13 again. Everyone knew something amazing had happened. But their natural inclination was not to have a a praise party. No, it was to get confirmation from the religious authority. And plus, no doubt they knew, Jesus did this on the Sabbaths, and so now they've got a dilemma. They know that this guy was born blind, that he had begged his entire life outside the temple. Now he can see, and maybe for some of them, they're like, oh, what if, what if Jesus is who he claims to be? Do you remember somebody said that he said this back in Matthew, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I can tell you right now that crowd were tired and weary. Rome had oppressed them and the Jewish establishment burdened them. One took and the other piled it on. And our passage tells us that they brought the man to the Pharisees and made a report. They in turn asked the man to tell them himself what happened. And you'll notice, number one, if you want to write down, religion will always twist the truth. Religion twists the truth. See, there were people reported that Jesus did this amazing thing. But it was on the Sabbath. So they needed to know. Did Jesus do something wrong? Which, of course, we've already read. They sure thought he did. Did Jesus break the law? Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount back in John Matthew chapter 7? Where he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He said, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And I want you to know, Jesus did not violate God's law. God's law taught that on the seventh day in Exodus chapter 20 verse 10, you shall not do any work. But by the time you get to the first century, the Pharisees that took it upon themselves to define it in minute detail. They had 39 categories of multiple things you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Good luck keeping that. I grew up in a world where you had to take a nap on a Sunday afternoon. And that was hard enough to keep. Let alone if mom and dad said, here's 39 qualifications with sub-qualifications and all of those qualifications don't mess up this is what they had done according to the Pharisees and healing this blind man Jesus had violated the law in three different ways number one was he spat on the ground for them that was work because he made a ball of clay secondly they said that he healed somebody now you have to realize that the Sabbath said you could heal someone who was dying but this was great but it did forbid you in cases of the patient where the patient could wait now I don't know about you but maybe that's how you feel about social health care in Canada right basically it was look if you're dying fine but if you can wait till Monday just suffer a few more hours that was the attitude and then thirdly there was a specific injunction against rubbing saliva on the eyes of another human being And so what do they do? They twist things. Look at verse 16. They say to him, no, this is not right. And then look at how this man answers. Look at verse 16. They say to him, I love this. And some of the fairies said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But notice in verse 17, so they go to him again, and he says, he's a prophet. Now I don't want you to skip over that in verse 17. Jesus is called a prophet by a man who's never seen him. Moses told Israel back in Deuteronomy 13, to 5 that they would know a prophet was from God if he could, number one, perform miracles, number two, his prophecies came true, and number three, if they were in keeping with the word of God. So do you see what this guy's doing? He's looking at these religious leaders who should be able to see this and going, look, if you would simply test Jesus' words and deeds against the Bible, you'd know for sure if he is who he says he is. But look at what the beginning of verse 18 says. The Jews did not believe. Who? Both the man and Jesus. So instead, they twist the truth. Now before you all say, yes, Stephen, man, tell us how bad the Pharisees are. Um, don't we do that too? Let's be honest, whether it's money, or sexuality, or marriage, or family, or the job we have, or taxes, or relationships, or forgiveness. How many times do we as Christians say, Oh, I know what God says in his word about marriage, but then we force our agenda on God. And friends, I want you to know that's a dangerous place to be for when you start twisting the truth, then the next part comes because religion is also cold-hearted. Religion is cold-hearted. And I say that for two reasons because you'll notice in this passage, they never care about the man and they never care about his family. It's cold. There's no joy. That is what has happened. Where's the worship and the praise? But all too often, do we see this in a 21st century world? Maybe in our church, when we're dangerously close to being religious, someone comes off drugs and our only response is, let's see how long that lasts. All too often I run into professing Christians and we're jaded and we're cynical. A rebellious child comes home, but we want to make sure that we remind them of who they once were. We wait for folks to fail sometimes, don't we? And then we go, aha, when it does happen, or say something like, I told you so. But I just ask, who of us doesn't falter and need fresh grace every day? Who doesn't need new mercies? You see, religion just can't seem to be happy except if you're burdened and miserable and trying to keep the rules to feel good about yourself. This is what the doctor, Dr. Luke said in Luke chapter 18 when he quotes this Pharisee who says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, Bible says, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now listen to the words of the Lord. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now notice why. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. They're not joyful, they're cold heartedly critical. And so what do they do? They call his parents. And I'm going to deal with that more, but notice what they do in verse 24. They say to this man, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And then look down again at verses 28 to 30. Where they tell him, you would tell him, you're a disciple of his, you would ask us to be a disciple of Jesus. We're disciples of Moses. And then finally in verse 34, they cast him out. James Montgomery Boy said it. They were ready to kill Jesus for breaking the Sabbath, but they were not prepared to let him heal on it. What a contrast to how true Christians should react, yes? Do you and I rejoice over each other? Do we seek to give God glory when we hear the praises of others? When someone comes to you and says, "Steve, listen, what happened this week? Happened this week. God blessed me in this way, or I discovered this, or I read this chapter." Is my re- an instant response to start pulling everything apart theologically? When someone reads a passage of Scripture and comes to me, Pastor Steve, you'll never guess what I read, and I'm like, "Well, now listen. In the background of this passage, and it was written in AD 44, and da 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 da, da. and before you know it, I'm being a Pharisee." I'm not saying we aren't to subject our emotions to the truth of Scripture. But I am saying we can rejoice whenever we see anyone moving towards Jesus. Amen? Because we know how patient and full of mercy and grace Jesus is toward us. You want to know if you are getting the gospel? It will be most displayed in your patient long-suffering with other people getting the gospel. Don't brag to me that you get the gospel. If you're an angry, unjoyful, bitter, critical person. Church, let us never forget what Jesus said again in Luke 18. He says, what a man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Listen, you know one of the reasons I don't think we're inviting people out to church anymore or not as much as we should? The one reason we're not evangelizing is because we've lost the joy of the gospel. We've got to get excited when we see God working in anyone in the smallest little ways. Because if you don't, then you'll notice the third thing is religion makes innocent victims. Religion makes innocent victims. They don't believe this guy. They don't want to believe him. So they call his parents. They're so busy twisting the truth for their own ends. They're so busy condemning. They've got no joy to worship God. And so they bring this man's parents. And this man's parents here in verses 18 to 23 is a real tragedy. Because in verse 22, John tips us off to why his parents are so cagey with the Pharisees. They know if they agree with their boy, we lose the temple. See, this is religion. Religion is the philosophy of intimidation and threats and demands. There's no love. There's no longing for relationship. It's either do as we say or we'll cut you off. And don't confuse, my friends, the discipline of Jesus or what the church is called to do with religion. Religion. We read Hebrews today. Hebrews tells us that God disciplines those he loves. Why? Not to cut them off, but to protect them, to draw them into a deeper relationship with him. The church pursues the holiness of Christ, not in some sort of one-upmanship or intimidation, but we honestly and desperately care for each other, and we can't bear to see one hurt themselves by not trusting Jesus, which leads me to my last characteristic, which is religion deals with comparative righteousness. It twists the truth. It's cold-hearted. It makes for innocent victims. Because it deals with comparative righteousness. See, verses 24 to 34 is the culmination of the Pharisees for John. This is the tragic, burdensome, frightened outcome of religion. Religion. Rather than give God glory, rather than even honestly search the scriptures to see if Jesus is telling the truth, rather than listen to the testimony of the man, their final argument is this, we are disciples of Moses, this guy's a sinner, we are better than you, and so effectively they look at the man and tell him, you shut up to be crude and blunt, and stop thinking you can tell us anything. And my dear friends, as Christians, let's be sure that we're not guilty of this as well. Let's not be guilty of us walking around in our own Christian circle saying, I don't have to listen to you. You're younger than me. I don't have to listen to you because you're not Bible college trained. I don't have to listen to you. I've attended longer. I've given more. I serve more. Who are you to tell me how to live But listen, church, never forget that the mark of maturity in Christ is not something you have to point out. If you give, give to Jesus. If you serve, serve for Jesus. If you've been saved longer, the ultimate result of that should be your understanding of grace and mercy should be much deeper and so your humility humility more profound. Remember a couple of weeks ago when I quoted John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace? Do you know what he said later in life? He said, I've learned only two sure things. I am a great sinner, but I have an even greater Savior. (laughs) That's Mark of the maturity. Ultimately, religion thinks itself better than those who don't live better than they do. And they think this of Jesus. And that's all the way back to chapter 8, where they said, we're the children of Abraham. We're the children of Moses. Oh, we're the children of God. And they look at this man, this blind man, and they basically, you can hear it, you beggar, you were born in sin. You've not been rabbinically trained. And this Jesus, this carpenter's son, who are you to tell us that we're blind or, or need healing, much less should admit that we are weary and we're hurting or we're confused? Or because that would require humility and confession and repentance and admitting you need help. You see the greatest hindrance to religious pride is to actually say out loud I can't fix myself I don't have this I must ask for help to do something I can't I've got to throw myself before another person and admit I need amazing grace and if this was where I stopped I think it would be a rather sad story but as we get ready to sing, I want you to realize this faithful servant's response. And Just for two minutes, I want you to understand what trusting in Jesus looks like for a real Christian. This is not religion. This is what Christianity looks at. Number one, Christians, listen, in the 21st century world, you must expect conflict. This guy has suffered his whole life. Been blind from birth. God heals him. He gets his sight back. You would think now the sun would rise like every movie that we love and Disney plays it and and they lived happily ever after. But that's not what happens. His parents choose religion over him. There's no rejoicing of his neighborhood or his family, extended family. There's no welcome back to the family. There's no religious leader or pastor or someone to say, Hey, listen brother, come in. Let me tour you around the temple you've never seen. No, from an earthly perspective, the first day of his Christian life can be summed up in verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. That's a great way to start your Christian life, isn't it? You've got to expect conflict if you're going to follow Jesus. But Jesus' love and mercy is radical and exclusive. Now listen to me, all can come to Jesus. In fact, everyone is invited to come to Jesus. But Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So if you're going to do that Christian life, but now, here's how this piles up in a very good way. Because next, you'll always have God's fatherly comfort. Don't miss this in John 20, verse 31, right? But these written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, this man received his sight physically, but more than that, his heart was opened to life. Life with Jesus. You see, friends, this man didn't need the temple anymore. He probably spent his entire life begging, saying, if I could just see it, he didn't need the approval of religious people or of a religious system that didn't care for him at all. John Chrysostom, commenting on this passage, said, the Jews cast him out of the temple, but the Lord of the temple found him. <laughs> Jesus came to the man, and his conversion in verses 35 to 38 was an even greater miracle in his life, for now he had spiritual light. He was comforted and loved eternally. He was given value and purpose and meaning. He knew he was made in the image of God, saved by the Son of God, and even more now, you'll always get the Spirit's fueled courage. Because now he could be an evangelist, and he could be a theologian. Multiple times they asked him to defend himself and Jesus, and every time he knows just what to say. And that's the promise that God gives in his word. No matter how you respond to questions or attacks or threats or doubt, this is what Peter meant when he said, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for reason or for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here's my thing, church. Do you have a hope that's within you? That's the problem in too many churches. We're singing about the hope. You're hearing sermons about the hope. You're reading the Bible about the hope, but you don't live your lives like you've got the hope. If you have Jesus, you have hope. And then finally, you'll be made more and more complete in Christ. More and more complete. Now verses 4 and 5 of the chapter come true. The light of the world is Jesus. Verse 38 of our chapter is the zenith of this man's conversion. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. He worshipped him. See, my friends, the trouble with his parents, the being cast out of the temple, one by the way that he has just seen. He sat outside this place where God was supposed to be and he begged, but now he sees God in the flesh and he worships. He's complete in Christ. Like Paul now, he can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And now he understands true theology. That's what the summation passage in verses 39 to 41 are all about. The blind will see and the seeing will and are blind. This man gets what religion can't, won't and doesn't want to see. He's now healed physically and spiritually. He has a peace that passes all understanding. And that fuels his grace and his mercy and his patience. It gives him pity and love. And I'm going to tell you right now, I bet you this man prayed and loved his parents. I bet you he prayed and witnessed many times to those same Pharisees that cast him out. And it probably both bothered them and fascinated them all at the same time. I love when I read in church history about Pliny the Younger as he's reporting back to Trajan the emperor how he would go and he would hunt out Christians and he would martyr them because they would not surrender to Caesar. And he writes to Trajan and he says this is how they do service but one thing I'll tell you about them they die well. He couldn't understand it. They should be miserable and they're peaceful. And so I ask you again do you believe In the Son of Man. Christian, you might say, Steve, like, dude, chill out. I do. I believe in Jesus. Then how has Jesus transformed your life? That seems like a fair question, doesn't it? How has and is trusting Jesus changing the way you think and talk and act when you are suffering, when life doesn't go your way, when things aren't happening exactly? Notice, I'm not asking you to obey a certain set of do's and don'ts. I'm asking how trusting Jesus is changing the way you stop trusting yourself. That you stop trusting money. Stop trusting in someone else. You're not trusting in a job or a spouse Or a family or accomplishments. Trusting Jesus means you deal with success and failure differently. It means you're not afraid of going to the Bible. And being honest with God and with yourself and with those around you. It's not stopping the struggle. But trusting Jesus changes the way you do struggle. Your attitude towards others. Your attitude towards pain and suffering. And yes, even forgiveness. Watch again the progression of the man. He's healed. Then he testifies, then he evangelizes, then he becomes a theologian, and finally and most importantly, he worships. You'll notice that the worship comes from his change, his passion, his courage, his knowledge, not the other way around. This man's worship is a result of trusting and obeying, of walking through the conflict, experiencing the comfort, developing the courage, and being grown in the grace and mercy of God. Is that any wonder why Paul, after spending 11 chapters in Romans telling us all about salvation, says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so let me ask you, Christians. Do you remember that exchange between the blind man and Jesus in verses 35 to 38? When was the last time you truly worshiped God? Jesus sent this man to wash in the pool of Siloam to get his sight. Now, I'm not saying that you are no longer blind, but I am asking do you need to go back to the pool and get some cataracts removed? Get a fresh perspective on the gospel. And if you are here today and you don't know Jesus, this is the pivotal question you've got to ask and answer. Do you believe that he is the Son of Man? I read this past week that there's a fork in the road of many of our lives. But in the continental divide, high in the Colorado mountains, where the waters of two small streams separate to begin two long journeys in different directions, One half leads to the Pacific Ocean on America's west coast. The other leads to the Atlantic Ocean on the east. And the dividing point is a single rock that sits within that little stream. And as the water strikes the rock, some of it goes to the west and goes down to the White River of Utah and to the Grand River and then the Colorado River and it pours out into the Pacific in the Gulf of California. But the rest of the water turns east and it flows into North Platte River. And then it goes through the Missouri River and the Mississippi River and into the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean. Two drops of water side by side find two different destinies when they strike that one rock. And I want to tell you spiritually, that rock is Jesus. And will you go this way into belief or this way into unbelief? Do you believe in the Son of God? And that one question will determine your eternal destiny. So fix your eyes on the wonderful Savior. Devote your life to worshiping Him and never turn back to the darkness now that your eyes have been opened to see. That's my King. Do you know Him? Do you believe Him? Will you trust Him? Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for the opportunity to preach Your Word, but more importantly, to read it. Read lots of it this morning. Lord, with so many friends and so many visitors, I don't know everybody here. I don't even know everybody's names. But I do know this, where there's people, there's issues. There's questions and hurts. There are people in this room that have experienced cataclysmic suffering. Lord, some Christians need to come to you and say, Lord, open my eyes afresh and anew to see you and how awesome you are. Some Christians need to ask for forgiveness for slipping into a Pharisee way of thinking, cold-hearted and critical. Some need to know that you're here waiting, saying, come to me, and I'll save you. I'll, I'll make your eyes see, oh God, that we would know what it means to trust and obey. Lord, I do ask that you would Give courage to anyone here or who's prayer to find me or Russ or one of the other elders of this church or find a friend. If someone's here and they don't know you and they want to, someone's here with a question. Lord, don't let the affairs of life make us feel, i got to get out of here now. I've, I've given my 90 minutes. I've punched the clock. It's done. But rather no, Lord, if your spirit is saying, I'm here. Would you see me? Would you look to me? My God and my Savior, oh, that we at Calvary Baptist would stop pretending that we would not be religious people, but Christians. And Lord, that we'd know we're all imperfect, that we'd have great patience with each other and long-suffering with each other as we walk this thing called the Christian life. Oh God, you are Jesus Messiah. And we give this to you in Jesus name and all God's people said